A reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 21, starting with verse 8. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham had a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son, whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham, was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly, because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered into the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. The word of the Lord. from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 6, starting with verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that gr grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into, Jesus, into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of its household? So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, 
or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. The gospel of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning on this summer day, summer Sunday, the season after Pentecost or ordinary time. It's always great to gather together. Uh, Our readings this week speak something, I think, deeply profound to us about the way we hold things in our lives, (laughs) how we think about things, how we hang on to things or let go of things, how we think about the things we have in our lives, but also the identities that we have and then the people who we hold most dear. Our readings speak to us about letting go. Of course, a father of two young daughters, whenever I hear Let It Go, a certain Disney song um, comes into my head. (laughs) But these uh, uh, letting go, when we talk about this today, we're not talking about pushing away, but rather we're talking about not grasping, not manipulating, not controlling, learning to hold things loosely. Now, we live in a world that's driven on scarcity. You know, we... In our culture, we have so much, and yet we're subtly taught that we should constantly be afraid of losing that stuff that we have. So we need to hold on tightly. And yet at the same time, we're also taught to keep our options open, to always kind of just look around for what's next and not think too much about what has been given to us. This can be deeply confusing. And I think our readings speak to us today something profound. So we begin in Genesis, continuing this story of Abraham and Sarah that we've been following. So we heard in chapter 12 the promise that God will make Abraham the father of many nations and that he will bless them and he will bless the world through them. And then in chapter 18, remember there's these three visitors, we talked about this last week, and they came and reiterated the promise. They said it's going to be a year and then Sarah's going to give birth to a son. They hold on to this promise even though the promise doesn't seem to make sense. Because Abraham and Sarah are really old. And they say this several times, we're really old. Is this really going to happen for us? 
And the road to the promise is not easy. It's indirect. It's chaotic. Abraham makes some bad choices along the way to the promise. He lies. He says his wife is actually his sister in order to gain the favor of a king. And still, the grace of God overrides Abraham's lie. God has chosen Abraham and remains faithful to him. And then we see in chapter 21, God's faithfulness is finally shown in the miraculous birth of Isaac. And there's rejoicing. God has done what he said he was going to do. God was faithful to the promise. We have this new family that is coming about this promise. But then in our reading today, the tone shifts dramatically. This child has been born into conflict. Life is messy. Going back to chapter 16, which we haven't read in our story, but in chapter 16, Abram, <laughs> Abram and his wife get a little bit impatient about God's promise. Is he really going to come through and do what he said he was going to do? It's been a little while, and he keeps saying that he's going to do this, but is he really going to come through? So they really take matters into their own hands. And at the urging of Sarai, his wife, he sleeps with Sarai's slave, Hagar, as an attempt to build the family through her. This is Abram and Sarai's choice. They, in impatience, they're trying to bring about the promise on their own. So they objectify Hagar. They use Hagar's body for their purposes. Hagar then conceives a son. And we can imagine, as with any family system throughout history, that Abram and Sarai's choice here begins a complex web of hatred and bitterness and pain. Because of this choice, the family systems have gotten weaved up and tied up in ways that are confusing and difficult. Sarah later despises Hagar. She blames Abraham. She then mistreats Hagar, which leads Hagar to flee and then to be brought back by an angel. There's all this stuff that gets really, really messy in the story. And then our story that we're reading today comes into play. Our reading takes place at Isaac's weaning party. Okay, That was a thing they had back then. In this culture, it may have been his third birthday. So they weaned children for a lot longer than we do today. And part of this is many children died at infancy. And this may have been an implicit celebration that this child has made it to three years. Like they've survived. So let's have a party and let's celebrate. The reading then says that Sarah sees Ishmael, who's now a teenager. And she sees that he's making people laugh. There's some confusion here because the word laugh is actually uh, where we get Isaac's name from. So Isaac's name means laughter. So she's seeing, okay, his name means laughter. And then she sees Ishmael's making people laugh. And something in her brain causes her to think Ishmael's replacing Isaac or he's a threat to Isaac. He's a threat to the promise. So she tells her husband, Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. Now remember, back in chapter 16, Sarah once saw Hagar as a tool for her own purposes. Well, that goes away when Isaac is born. Her usefulness is no longer a value. In fact, at this point, Sarah doesn't even call Hagar by name. She just calls her slave woman. She doesn't call Ishmael by name. She's just... Hagar's, he's just Hagar's son. Now, it's often quite tempting because 
many of us, whether it's with our families or our friendships, we have complexities in our lives too. These, we read these stories and as shocking as they are, the reason why they're shocking is because we read them in the Bible. We know that stories are complex. Families are complex. Relationships are complex. Sometimes what happens is we read the Bible and we think, well, this is supposed to be the neat and tidy story. This is supposed to be the clean story, right? This is the way life should be is how the Bible's portrayed. And our life is just messy and chaotic. But that doesn't line up with how the Bible works. If you actually like read it. If you read the Bible, it's full of ambiguity and complexity. Even when God makes what seems to be a clear promise, the story doesn't allow it to end up neatly. However, There's one clear thing through this. There's one very obvious, loud voice that screams to us in this passage and in every story throughout the Bible. And that's that God cares for those who find themselves on the outside. God cares for those, even those who have found themselves outside of the plot. So it's clear here that Abraham must do something. Sarah wants him to send Hagar and Ishmael away. And God tells him he is to do that because he can trust God to take care of them. Abraham's life is one of trust. He doesn't have anything to offer. He's obedient to God. He trusts in him. And here, Abraham has to trust that Hagar and Ishmael are more loved by God than they even are loved by him. Next week in the story we'll read, we'll notice that he has to do the same thing with Isaac. When God tells him to sacrifice Isaac, he has to trust that God loves Isaac even more than he does. So Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael with basic supplies. (coughs) Excuse me. This is the desert. And in the desert, you can wander for a period of time. But when your water runs out, it's pretty much over. Yet, Even when Hagar and Ishmael run out of water, and it seems like Ishmael will not make it any further, God hears Ishmael's cry. Even when it's too difficult at one point, Ishmael's reached the end of his rope, and his mother, Hagar, can't even look at him because it's too dire and too dark. She can't even hear his cry. God hears his cry. The angel of God says, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Sarah, remember, didn't identify Hagar by name. But God does speak her name. God knows Hagar. And it says God opened her eyes to a well of water. We're told that Ishmael grows up, becomes an archer, finds his wife, The story of Ishmael reminds us of God's care for those who we throw outside our tents. I wonder if we're drawn to and we think today about those in our world and in our lives who have been rejected, who don't fit with the plot we have been writing for ourselves, our church, our neighborhood, our nation. We can't resolve this neatly. Isaac is the child of the promise, but God loves and always will love Ishmael. In fact, it says God will make him into a great nation. Remember, this is the same promise that's made to Abraham. You'll notice this in the Bible. There's a primary plot 
and it goes all the way through and it seems like it's moving along. There's a promise. There's one family called to bless the world, set apart. There's this plot. And yet there are those who keep springing up all over the place who are told that they're outsiders. They're faithful ones who press their face against the glass as if to say, okay, I know this is the plot, but what about me? What is God's good news for me? Am I part of the story? And time and time again, as we read the story, we see that God loves those considered outsiders. It happens so frequently in the Bible, it's like our eyes are supposed to be drawn to those places. Maybe that's the point of the plot all along. Abraham had to let go, but it wasn't a rejection. His letting go of a way, was a way of trusting that God is good and that he loves his son. Abraham was unable to be for Ishmael what Ishmael needed. His scope was limited because of his own issues. But the good news is God is big enough and is always big enough. Now, I was going to talk a little bit about our Romans text today and had a good talk with my dad yesterday. And um, he and I talk about sermons and that kind of thing. And and I said, I really, I want to make this shorter. I got to cut this thing down, <laughs> this sermon. I don't talk. I said, should I just cut out the whole thing on Romans? And he said, well, your stuff on Romans is really good. And he said, but I think you probably talked a lot to your congregation about baptism. <laughs> he said, so you could probably drop that. <laughs> so that's what I've, I've done today. But all that to say, the Romans text, I'm not going to go far into this, but the Romans text is important because it talks about letting go our old identities, right? And trusting that when it says, when we've been baptized, there's this thing that, that really reveals that something completely has changed in us. Like it's like we've moved into a new reality. So what happens then is we have to learn to renew our minds, to let go of those old identities and to remember who we are in Christ. So it's so important. But if we're honest, all of this is kind of scary. Letting go is scary. When we let go of our other identities, when we let go of the sense of self we had before Christ, when we let go of some of the things that maybe seemed important to us, and we trust that Christ and God's love for us in Christ is the center of our lives, that can be a big, altering, scary thing. But the most frequent command in the Bible is do not be afraid. It's repeated so often that it seems like it's central. It summarizes the core of everything else. Do not be afraid is repeated three times in our gospel reading today. <clears throat> and Jesus has just told his disciples that they're going to go through some really tough stuff, some difficult trials. So why shouldn't they be afraid? Well, Jesus says it's because everything that's hidden is going to come into the light. I know you all know this, but there's so much in our world to grieve right now. And everything feels really complex. There's such complexity. I've been watching with Lucy. We've been going back and watching this show, The Good Place, um, as a show on, you guys are watching that too. Okay, see, it's the Holy Spirit is really what it is. But, the, uh, but one of the things they come to grips with as time goes on is, is trying to figure out, okay, they believe there were simple rules for who gets into the good place after they die and who gets into the bad place. And then as time goes on, they realize the world is way more complex than we thought. It can't be as simple as earning good points to get into one place or not earning enough points and get into another place. It's complex. It's difficult. Well, life is complex, and our world feels that way right now. It feels really complex. 
But the good news is there will be a day when all will be made right. There will be a day, and the good news is truth will prevail. Justice will reign. Those who have lived with integrity will be vindicated. And I think as Christians, it's so challenging, but we have to remember it's possible to hold on to the brokenness of the world in one hand and the longing for a better world in another, to grieve and to hope at the same time. So Jesus says here, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So it's weird here. He says, do not be afraid. Do be afraid. Do not be afraid. (laughs) So what's going on? Well, Jesus believed that the people of Israel had two major enemies. One of them is obvious. It's what they're dealing with politically. They have Rome, they have Herod, they have all the things associated with the the empire. And he says, these people have the power to kill your body. But there's a second enemy, a deeper, darker enemy at work, which also has the power to kill your soul. Sometimes the deeper, darker enemy uses the superficial enemies as cover. So at the time of Jesus, there were certain groups within the Jewish community and they were plotting this violent overthrow of the empire. So these oppressed, these people had been oppressed for centuries. Um, some of the groups were allowing themselves to become vengeful, seething with revenge and longing to destroy their oppressor violently. The enemy of our souls is sneaky. Not only does the enemy, Satan, the devil, use superficial powers for cover, the enemy takes what happens to us when we fight these superficial enemies. The vengeance, the rage, the longing to violently end our enemies and uses that to corrupt and warp our souls. So we can become so consumed with the flesh and blood enemy that the deeper enemy uses that vengefulness to start working away at our soul. The people of light are never more at risk than when we are tempted to fight darkness with darkness. So Jesus is telling the people, you're so freaked out by Rome, but you should be freaked out by the corruption of your soul. All Rome can do is kill your body, but there's an enemy seeking to corrupt the core of who you are And that's a road leading to hell. Now, the word hell that's used here is, excuse me, is the word Gehenna in Greek. And it's like a, a real place, like a literal place in the Holy Land, Gehenna. And it's a smoldering trash heap. In a world that had an ancient world with no modern waste system, no plumbing system, all the refuse went to Gehenna and then was burned. So it's, it's really, it's literally a dumpster fire is what Gehenna is. That's, that is the hell that he's describing here. So Jesus is saying, when you give in to the enemy of your soul, you're headed towards a burning, smoldering, putrid trash heap <laughs> because it's not good for you. It corrupts your soul. I want to suggest that each of us faces daily temptations towards the corruption of our soul. So when we think about, when you go to your job, and there's those days it's like, I just can't face the boss today. I just can't. I, I can't take him treating me this way. 
being passive-aggressive towards me, his refusal to honor my requests. There's this important reminder that a harmful boss can fire you and even attempt to steal your time, but they don't have the power to take your soul to the garbage. And you can be reminded of that. You don't have to allow your soul to be corrupted in the midst of it. Finances and thinking about finances can be soul corrupting for our lives. We get so anxious about it and we begin to freak out. And what the temptation is, is that freak out begins to change how we treat one another, how we treat our spouse, how we look at the world. Some of us have gone through hurt or betrayal from a friend or a family member. And it is right to grieve that. That's wrong and that's harmful. And at the same time, we must guard ourselves and not allow that betrayal and hurt to corrupt our souls. One of the things I appreciate about our parish is the way in which I know that each of you really care about the bigger issues of the world. You talk about these things. You're aware of the bigger issues going on. You're an informed people. But a natural result of that good thing is that there's a lot to be afraid of in the world. We can get fearful really fast. There's political polarization. There's climate change, artificial intelligence, all kinds of stuff that's freaking us out right now. Our fears can be paralyzing. And it's appropriate to look at those things and go, yeah, some of those things are scary. And it's worthwhile to seek a solution to practical everyday and even political challenges. We still fight for justice. Jesus is certainly not telling his disciples, keep your head in the clouds, let it go, don't think about Rome or any of the problems going on. He's not saying don't be in denial. But there's a deeper truth here. We can only effectively seek to resolve the issues with our flesh and blood enemies when we do not allow our souls to be corrupted, when we don't fight darkness with darkness. That's why Dr. Martin Luther King said that darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Because it's impossible to hate your way to healing. It's impossible to revenge your way to restoration. It's impossible to destroy your way to wholeness. We ought, Jesus would say, to be more freaked out by the corruption of who we are as individuals, as societies, as communities, than even the destruction of our bodies. Even as Jesus says that his disciples should be freaked out by the potential of this soul stealing, he still says, do not be afraid. So this fear, this concern is balanced out by the fact that we can trust in God because he cares. The God who the disciples serve is Lord of the world and he doesn't just care for us in a general sense. It says he knows every hair on your head. God cares about your battles with the deeper enemy and the superficial enemies, and he wants to see you through. So this means God cares about the large-scale issues our world is facing. God cares about the troubles that our kids have at school. God cares about the migraines that you suffer from. Yes, there are more important things in the world than a migraine, but God cares about every hair on your head. God cares about everything. Verses 34 through 39 are uniquely challenging. And as I read them even today, I was like, whoa, 
That's startling. Because at first blush, they don't look like Jesus' words. Remember, Jesus is the one who promises peace, right? He says, turn the other cheek and walk the second mile. And he's the Sermon on the Mount and all this stuff. And and here it seems like he's saying, hey, when I come, I'm going to turn families against each other violently. What? Is Jesus anti-family? Has he come to turn our families against each other? Well, today, of course, there are many cultures in which when somebody embraces Jesus, it means to legally or even physically come in in conflict with one's family. It's not just that family reunions are awkward. It's when you become a Christian, there's a sense in some cultures you have to be disowned by your family or your family will be persecuted or even killed. The culture of Jesus's time was much more radical like that one than it is like ours. So we may not face the same kind of conflict in our lives. Yet, this is a good test case for our lives. How do we see our families in light of the gospel? As weird as it is to say, the gospel does not call us to put family first. I want to suggest that many Western Christians value a Western concept of family over the way of Jesus. This leads us to all kinds of things. Like one example might be when me and my family isolate from others especially those who are different from us or who might make us initially uncomfortable just because it's easier and I need to cloister and protect my family. Another example might be the ways in which extracurricular activities like youth sports often dominate a family schedule, leaving little room for Christian community or devotion. When we embrace families as primary in our lives, It can actually get in the way of us choosing the path of Jesus. Now, there are a bunch of examples throughout church history of Christians who have found themselves in conflict with their families because of their faith. One example is St. Francis of Assisi. He was born into a noble family during the 12th century, and he starts his career as a soldier. Then he's a socialite because his family's really wealthy. And then he has a dramatic transformation, an encounter with Jesus. And inexplicably, in his village, Francis starts hugging lepers on the street. (laughs) He starts giving away all his clothing, his expensive clothing that he has as part of his family. And he starts associating and spending time with the poor. The people in the village think Francis has lost his mind. He's crazy. And so his dad, his father, is so embarrassed. I didn't tell this story for Father's Day last week. This is this one. But his dad was so embarrassed that he takes Francis to court and he demands that he gets back every penny that he gave to the poor and he gets back all of his clothing. So what Francis does is he stands there in front of the court and he begins to take off all of his clothing until he's standing there naked before the judge. And he says, until now, I have called Peter Bernadone my father on earth. From now on, I desire to say only our Father who art in heaven. Francis left the court and devoted his whole life to loving God and loving others. I don't give this today as a prescription. Um, This is a dramatic example. But Francis's calling led him into direct conflict with his family. So does this mean we don't love our families? Of course not. In fact, Christians are to embody the love of God for our families. Those of us who are parents are uniquely called to steward the lives of our children 
to the glory of God. In fact, many of the apostles in the early days of the church took their spouses with them on their travels. Jesus is not anti-family. The point is to ask, what is the central lens through which we view our lives? What is the central thing in our lives? Because if family is our primary focus, we're going to see everything through the lens of our family. But if Jesus is the center of our lives, including our family life, everything comes into proper perspective. The way of Jesus is world-altering. It's not an add-on in our lives. It means everything else will change, and it's not often subtle. Behavior patterns will change. Habits, comforts will all be challenged as we move closer to Jesus. But perhaps when we see our family life through the lens of the perspective of the kingdom of God, even though it's difficult, it may actually bring about the healing in our families we so desperately long for. Perhaps, as another example, when we see our career through the perspective of the kingdom of God, not as a thing that validates us, but as an instrument through which we can speak life to the world, maybe we become more satisfied at work. What if money was not about just what I could buy next, but how I could be the best steward of what God has given me? And in times of lack, when we don't have money, we can be reminded we're dependent on God and not on money. Jesus says that this is about losing your life and then finding a glorious new life on the other side, which is so much better than anything any of us could have ever anticipated. So may we learn to let go today of those which God says to release, knowing that God loves more than we ever could, of those things that are out of our control, letting go of sin and the false identities that we hold on to, And may we know that our lives in the world are in better hands with God than they are with us. Amen.